0: The Way Out Podcast, episode 13.
1: I don't remember who I was with. I don't remember, you know, what day it was, what time of day it was. You know, all I remember is when that bottle got to me, when it came to my turn, and I took a sip, something came over me to the point where I started chugging the bottle, (laughs) and everybody was like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm drinking, like... And that was it, off to the races, like, that was from day one, I just started chugging and I just started, you know, feeling that immediate effect of release that this alcohol was giving me and it, it, there was no downhill, there was no, like, uh, reverting backwards, it was just from there on out, that's how I drank. I got to a point where I, I needed change, like, I couldn't continue drinking and I couldn't continue not showing up for my responsibilities and for my family. And, um, there's no way I was going to be capable of doing that if I went back to the same situation. You know, Everything had to change for me in order for me to be able to continue on a path of changing. The guilt and the shame that starts to build up from doing less than what you know you're capable of or want for yourself, even even putting aside how you poorly affect other people you know how much you affect yourself by not doing what our basic instincts cry for you know to be a member of society and to to love others and be loved like to not continuously not get those things for yourself is a terrible place to be and to continue to realize this over and over when you dry up it gets worse and worse biggest thing was going into a place where there were people like me you know, I started listening in in this room of people.
0: You started doing what?
1: Listening to what other people were saying.
0: Tell me about this listening. That
1: you do. <laughs> it's funny you should, like you zip your mouth closed and open your ears wide and you can sometimes hear profound things that other people say and I got a little glimpse of that at at a meeting my first meeting and i was blown away by people describing how i felt i didn't i you know i didn't give people like note cards to read off of but somehow they said exactly what i was thinking and exactly what i was feeling and just this excitement came over me because i was like i'm finally where i'm supposed to be
0: welcome Thank you for joining us on this week's installment of The Way Out, sharing stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. The Way Out does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. Our purpose is to share with you, one episode at a time, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. The Way Out is sponsored by Transitions Daily. Would you like to receive the most popular AA Daily Devotions free in one distribution? Transitions Daily delivers daily devotions from 24 hours a day, AA Thought for the Day, Daily Reflections, Big Book Quote, Just for Today, As Bill Sees It, plus more. You can get our distribution daily via email, private Facebook group, or Twitter. Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information. Don't forget to share dailyahemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. The Way Out Podcast is on now. I'm your host, Charlie L. This week, we'll hear the experience, strength, and hope of Jamie. Jamie, welcome. Thank Thank you you for being here. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I, I basically had to twist your arm and <laughs> uh, bribe no, that's not true uh, uh, to do the podcast. Actually, it was really great that you uh, uh, that you accepted my uh, offer to do the podcast. Uh, we uh, uh, go to a a 12 step meeting in common and I immediately was very clued into how, different your recovery was uh, in terms of what I had experienced before. And I think our listeners could really learn a lot from some of the things that you've encountered throughout your recovery journey. So what I'd like to do is have you introduce yourself uh, and uh, tell the Way Out cast audience a little bit about yourself, uh, and uh, then we can uh, maybe uh, start talking about Uh, You know what it was like to be Jamie uh, when uh, when you were young and uh, um, and uh, your your uh, uh, road to recovery.
1: Mm All right. Well, yeah, I'm Jamie, and I'm from Woodbury, Minnesota. That is my hometown. Um, I've lived there since 1996 is when we moved there. Um, So about 20 years now. And I grew up with my dad, my mom, and a sister. I'm the oldest child. Um, I haven't picked up a drink or a drug since July 17th of 2007.
0: Okay, hold on. I'm going to need you to repeat that. You haven't picked up a drug or a drink (laughs) since July 17th of 2007?
1: Yes, nine years ago.
0: Is that nights and weekends too?
1: All included. Wow,
0: that's impressive. Just in and of itself, to be able to string that many twenty-four hours together to have a continuous sobriety has to be one of those one of the one of the things that comes to mind right away. The word that comes to mind right away for me is um, uh, is persistence and um, you know, that dedication to uh, staying sober. How did you, uh, before we, uh, before we get into how you stayed sober that long, what brought you to recovery?
1: Oh, um, I had a very short lived, um, kind of time using and drinking. Um, how
0: old were you when you first started to use or drink?
1: I picked up my first drink when I was 14 years old
0: so you and I can relate to that yes because that's exactly the same moment I picked up my first drink as well when I was 14 how did that first drink make you feel
1: I my first drink I I tell this story a lot um to newcomers because you know that's really what captivates us is is either you know that initial start off period or you know the initial falling off um and seeking out help period those are just really big things we're able to relate on so I talk about it a lot um with a group of friends. Uh, There was about seven of us and we were all sitting in a circle. It was a few of the girls' first time drinking, my first time drinking. Somebody got a bottle somehow (laughs) Um, and I don't remember who I was with. I don't remember, you know, what day it was, what time of day it was. You know, all I remember is when that bottle got to me, when it came to my turn and I took a sip, something came over me To the point where I started chugging the bottle (laughs) and everybody was like, What are you doing? I was like, I'm drinking like and that was it. Off to the races. Like that was from day one I just started chugging and I just started, you know, feeling that immediate effect of release that this this alcohol was giving me and it had there was no downhill, there was no like um reverting backwards. It was just from there on out, that's how I drank.
0: so you're after the races I can identify a hundred percent with that immediate f- release of care and worry mm-hmm. and I, I I it it made me okay with the world it made me okay with me mm-hmm. and it did for me what nothing else could and what I couldn't do for myself I didn't particularly like being me
1: mm-hmm
0: I didn't particularly like the way the world was. I wasn't happy with the world. I had a lot of problems with the way the world was at that point. And that immediate feeling of complete and utter uh, uh, euphoria and release of care, I, I, just, I, I had never experienced anything like it in my entire life. And all I wanted to do was feel that way again. Absolutely. (laughs) So you can identify with that.
1: Yes, definitely. Um, I think my goal going there was to um, fit in. And, you know, that ended up not even mattering after I found out what I found out. (laughs) Right.
0: Tell tell me a little bit more about that experience and did you immediately then try to seek that out over and over again as much as you could you know when i was 14 and it was probably similar you know i'm a lot older than you but when i was 14 it was very difficult to find alcohol mm. very difficult it mm-hmm. was a
1: lot easier to find
0: drugs of any sort than it was to find alcohol
1: yes um, no, I totally understand that, and it was a bit difficult on my end, too. A little backstory: um, Neither mm-hmm. of my parents drink alcohol. Um, both my parents are technically sober. Um, I think my mom has 20-some years without a drink, and my dad has about 15-some years without a drink. So I didn't grow up with it in the house.
0: So when you say technically sober, I'm gathering that they don't work any sort of formal recovery program?
1: They don't. They stopped going to meetings quite a few years ago. Um, Every once in a while, my dad will come check out um, our annual Gopher State Roundup for speaker meetings. But other than that, they they don't attend anything like that.
0: So there's no alcohol in the house. So it wasn't like you could pillage mom and dad's liquor cabinet and fill it up with water exactly not saying that i did that i did <laughs> um but, so you had to seek it elsewhere yes was it relatively difficult to find was it easy to find how did that
1: um well i think one of the the other biggest things that we all tend to relate to is being able to find our kind of people yes <laughs> and i definitely very quickly fell into a crowd of people Um, who, like me, kind of sought out um, more of an escape than rather uh, attending to life's responsibilities. Um, So as soon as I found, you know, a few girlfriends that drank and, you know, either happened to have older brothers or parents who were okay with their children drinking under supervision, that's where most of my time was spent. So,
0: Tell me, you said you had a relatively short-lived active using career were drugs involved too
1: um I did smoke marijuana every once in a while
0: did you inhale (laughs) yes okay (laughs)
1: um but other than that I got lucky in the sense I wasn't curious enough um alcohol did enough for me and that was you know my go-to that was what I was looking for so not too much else
0: did it progress quickly
1: It did. Yeah. Um, so I drank from 14 to 16 years old. Um, I couldn't say that, um, I drank daily, you know, that, that wasn't usually a possibility being so young, but definitely binge drinking, you know, if I was able to get some or go somewhere where there was some, I would stay as long as I could and drag it out for as long as I could. So there would be, you know, just chunks of time where I would be completely obliviated and then chunks of time where I'd have to force myself back into reality.
0: It's interesting you say that because that was the same way for me. I smoked a, a, it was a daily pot smoker Mm. and I was a binge drinker because again, alcohol was very difficult to get or... It was only available when it was available. Mm-hmm. You dang near had to give somebody your kidney in order to go to a liquor store and buy booze for right. you. Especially if you're a dude that
1: mm-hmm.
0: looks like me. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> when I smile pretty and wink, it usually doesn't get me anywhere mm-hmm. uh, with uh, a uh, uh, an older guy that can buy booze. So it was parties, but but it was absolutely drinking to oblivion. Yes in this wild binge drinking as I got older and I was able to buy alcohol, it became a little bit different. It was more chronic because I could get it all the time. Mm -hmm. So then instead of having these periods of complete oblivion and then periods of being somewhat dry, it was a constant state of being numbed Mm -hmm. because I had the, the regular access to it. So you've got two years, you're binge drinking you're partying, I'm assuming. Yep. At 16, most people are like, I haven't even gotten to college yet. I'm not even out of high school yet. <laughs> um, I have no plans at not uh, stop drinking, you know, I uh, to stop drinking. None whatsoever. I went to treatment when I was 14-ish, 15, and I had no plans. Just, I mean, I had just gotten started right yeah so what 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 were the series of of events that occurred in your drinking career that prompted you to stop drinking now i will i will say this it doesn't matter how long you drink Mm -hmm. i was an alcoholic from the first time i took a drink that didn't matter time was not an issue i have been an alcoholic ever since that first time i drank What was it that allowed you to get to that point where you felt like it was uh, a time to try something different?
1: I mean, that is, you know, the biggest thing I think we can all um, really recognize with when our lives start spinning out of control and our drinking starts to affect other people and it starts to affect um, our lives in such negative ways, you know, it's that end of the line comes pretty quickly um, and even in the book, it says, especially for women. <laughs> um, but for me, you know, the the more I drank, the more aggressive I got. And um, aggression kind of runs in my family. So every time I was, you know, drinking or not, being at home was a pretty toxic environment. Um, and my drinking definitely agitated that. And, you know, my parents had gotten to the point of threatening, you know, either treatment or some sort of juvenile program, you know, basically saying they, they really don't know what lef- what's left to do with me. Um, and it was, let's see, it was the summer of 2007. It was, it was April, because <laughs> I remember we were very excited about 420 coming up. Um, and my friend and I, um, on 419 decided to have our older boyfriends pick us up from school and without knowing we weren't planning on coming back for a few days. We didn't know that yet, but, um, it turned into kind of a runaway situation <laughs> that the cops were involved with. Um, but my friend and I, um, did many things I cannot recall we left The state, we were in Wisconsin at some beach party uh, for some portion of this trip. And there were, you know, many instances that I don't remember. To be blunt, um, this is the time I even lost my virginity. I don't remember that whatsoever either. Um, It was just a complete blur of just drinking and drinking and smoking and drinking. Um, And, you know, we didn't come home the next day. And our parents, you know, freaked out. Uh, The police were called, like, flyers were being hung up. Like, have you seen these girls? Mm -hmm. Um, And my friend's grandfather is actually a private investigator and came up from Florida to find us and ended up, like, stalking my boyfriend at the time and following him home from work where they eventually found us. And the police brought us home um, that night. I, my mother. I've never seen my mother as hysterical as she was. She, you know, talking about how we affect other people, pushed beyond her limit. And she actually brought me down to the hospital and wanted me <laughs> to be, you know, put in the psych ward because she was so mm-hmm. upset with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, they wouldn't take me. Um, so she, she did the one final warning speech to me after that night again Um, but that's not where it stopped of course (laughs) Uh, I got many final warning talks and so I didn't take this one very seriously Um, and so after that you know I was pretty uh, thrown off by how much I affected my mother and affected my family with this debacle of running away and having police involved and worrying people sick Um, So I think I went about two weeks without a drink. Mm -hmm. That was my best efforts of trying to make up for what I had just done two weeks. And um, I left school early, went and got drunk and came home. And my parents were notified of me leaving school early, of course. And I got home to my bags being packed. And they told me that I was being taken to the harbor shelter for juvenile girls in Hastings. Um, I think they normally do like a 72-hour a hold, but it was on a weekend, so the weekends didn't count. So I was supposed to be there for about five days. Um, that's where everything changed for me. I had never been put out of my house before, and I had never gone to inpatient treatment before. Um This this is a really big shock for me.
0: Um, Um, Were you angry?
1: I was pretty angry. Um, I mean, I realized that, you know, they really didn't know what else to do with me. You know, it was kind of their their last straw. And um, so it wasn't surprising for sure. But, yeah, I was angry and hurt. Um, And it got even worse because they came on visiting day. And (laughs) I remember I was crying and begging them to take me home. And my dad started crying. I haven't seen my dad cry at this point in over a decade. My dad's a very strong, solid man who doesn't show many emotions. And Mm -hmm. he is just broke down. And it, you know, tugged at my heart in so many ways um, that that was my changing moment. You know, when I got out of there... I wanted to go to outpatient treatment. Um, I had been taken prior for an assessment, and they actually said this was probably in 2006. And they said that they just thought I was in an experimental phase. Um, so I decided to go back to where I had my assessment and see if they thought I needed the outpatient now. Um, and so I went to New Connections um, a few days after I got out of the harbor shelter. And they said, do you sound like you need to come here? And so I did 34 days of outpatient there um, before graduating. <laughs> um, but while I was there, um, two things happened. One, they took me to my first AA meeting, um, which ended up being my home group after going there. And two, a representative from a school called Sobriety High School came in and spoke at our treatment center. And, um, for some reason I'm not really, um, calling it on my doing because I don't really go off logic much, but something was just like, you can't go back to your old school and try and stay sober. Mm-hmm. And this, this opportunity just kind of fell in my lap. And so I took it and, uh, that was a, a huge thing for me. You know, I couldn't have imagined going back to my normal high school um with my normal friends who i drank with and used with on the regular and stayed sober there's no way um so i went to sobriety high school the following year didn't finish where I'm at woodbury and i ended up staying there for the full four years and graduating from sobriety high school so
0: i think that's amazing i knew of sobriety high when i was in high school mm-hmm. and I didn't want any part of it because I think you have to stay sober. I think that's right. a rule. Okay, yes. <laughs> so I didn't want any part of that situation. However, I will say that you touched on something so important when it comes to young people in recovery, and that is the power of your peer group and being plopped right back into that same situation. There is absolutely no way I could have stayed sober. And didn't, by the way, because I got plopped right back into my peer group Mm -hmm. with my best friends. I mean, these are the people you go to war with against, you know, you know, everything. You -hmm. you need that. You need, even if it's not the best company, Mm -hmm. even if they're not the best influences, even if they're telling you to do certain things that you know you shouldn't do, or you're engaging in behavior that you know is self-destructive, it's a lot better than going it alone. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a scary proposition in high school. Yes. So you were able to, something inside of you, I might call it the god of your understanding, Mm -hmm. prompted you to say, yeah, I want to do this because I'm scared of what will happen if I go back to my regular high school.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like, I got to a point where I, I needed change. Like, I couldn't continue drinking and I couldn't continue not showing up for my responsibilities and for my family. And um, there's no way I was going to be capable of doing that if I went back to the same situation. You know, everything had to change for me in order for me to be able to continue on a path of changing.
0: Many of us in recovery and in active addiction, and the more I do the podcast and have the tremendous honor of being able to interview people in long-term recovery, the more I discover the common theme that was true for me, that in active addiction, we find ourselves so far from the person that we have a overriding belief that we can be Mm -hmm. or should be. And the further we progress into our disease, whether that be rapidly or whether we progress over a long period of time rather slowly, we get to this place where we feel like there's no way I can ever be that person. It seems so far away that I can never be the person that I think I should or want to be. And that's a painful place to be. Mm -hmm. And for me, when I finally was able to get my gift of desperation to surrender to the disease and begin to recover that's the moment i started to be able to one day at a time get closer to that person that i always thought i could be and i always felt like i had inside of me but didn't know how to get there can you relate to that
1: absolutely uh that was one of the biggest thought processes is how on earth do I change my life like this is like my best effort you know me moving forward is getting me backwards um I didn't I didn't know what else to do there was no instruction book and the people I was surrounded with were were really <laughs> going off the same game plan um and just the guilt and the shame that starts to build up from doing less than what you know you're capable of or want for yourself even even putting aside how you poorly affect other people you know how much you affect yourself by not doing what our basic instincts cry for you know to be a member of society and to to love others and be loved like to not continuously not get those things for yourself is a terrible place to be and to come continue to realize this over and over when you dry up it gets worse and worse it's just like how or where
0: (laughs) that's a very profound thing you said for me because this place of depriving ourselves our addiction deprives us of receiving the, the, the basic necessities to be a part of the rest of the world basic love and uh, uh, caring for ourselves and other people our addiction steals that from us Mm -hmm. it steals everything from us and it's a horrible place to be and only somebody that's been there can really identify with how heart-wrenching awful and painful a place and how Terribly lonely that is. Mm -hmm. Terribly, terribly lonely. I cannot even begin to try to put into words the awful misery that accompanies that deep loneliness that we feel when we're at the depths of our disease. Mm -hmm. And we finally... One way or the other, if we're lucky, if if God, for me, sees fit, we're able to get to that place of desperation where we ask for help, genuinely ask for help. Like, I can't do this anymore. I can't live like this anymore. I can't continue to drink, but I don't know how to stop. I've tried. It mm-hmm. doesn't work. But I can't continue to live like this. I'd rather die. Yes. I'd rather not be here. It's too damn painful.
1: Exactly. Um, To kind of put in perspective, um, it was like my third day, fourth day into treatment, um, and I actually had to have an emergency dental procedure. And (laughs) the funniest thing is... um, I had to, I went and got this procedure done and they were like, we're going to be honest, this is going to be so painful, so we're giving you these drugs <laughs> and it was like beyond me, first of all, how strong the desire to not want to use these drugs was, you know, I had committed to going to treatment, I become desperate that I needed to change and now these doctors are trying to give me drugs. Um, I was at home after the procedure for about two and a half hours bawling and screaming in the bathtub (laughs) trying to ride out this pain because that's how much I wanted to be sober and I didn't want anything to possibly interfere or change my mind about that. Um, I did eventually give in and take the one (laughs) prescribed dose and didn't end up needing more afterwards. Um... But just that that complete readiness that we get is also unlike any other feeling that somebody would really be able to relate to unless being there. So that's
0: And funny how story. did you feel once you surrendered? And what was that feeling like? <sighs>
1: um I I wanna say there was more excitement than I would have expected. Um, you know, it, it does you know, at first you're like <laughs> completely um, almost full of despair because you're, you're licked, you're defeated. Like you've right. got nothing else. Your hands are up, the white flag's up. And, you know, for me and being in a situation like that, I thought I would immediately fall into some sort of depression and be like just this zombie trying to not do what I've been doing and being miserable trying to not drink and use. Um, but it actually turned out, you know, especially after going to my first AA meeting, um, there was this almost light that came back on inside of me. Um, you know, the biggest thing was going into a place where there were people like me. You know, I started listening in, in this room of people.
0: You started doing what?
1: Listening to what other people were saying.
0: Tell me about this listening that you
1: do. <laughs> it's funny, you sh- like you zip your mouth closed and open your ears wide, and you can sometimes hear profound things that other people say. And I got a little glimpse of that at, at a meeting, my first meeting, and I was blown away by people describing how I felt. I didn't, I, you know, I didn't give people like note cards to read off of but somehow they said exactly what I was thinking and exactly what I was feeling and just this excitement came over me because I was like I'm finally where I'm supposed to be (laughs) like never in my life have I felt like I'm I'm where I'm supposed to be I didn't feel like I wanted or fit in at school I didn't feel like I wanted was wanted or fit in at home and you know I finally found this place of people that, you know, one thing welcomed me with opened arms, but secondly, we're as crazy as I was. <laughs> and somehow, not drinking and doing drugs and being okay with that is the, <laughs> the best feeling ever, really. It really is kind of counter-opposite of that, that hopelessness we feel when we first, you know, surrender and ask for help. And you know, just kind of zoomed into... Um, all these feelings on the opposite of the spectrum of maybe just maybe this could actually work for me
0: you came to a place from a place of total defeat total despair you've been licked (laughs) and were you scared of what life was going to be like without alcohol before going into that first meeting? Before you hit that first meeting, were you scared? Were you nervous? Were you, or what was that feeling like now that I know that I can't do this and you've got this, now what?
1: Um, I mean, yeah, there's definitely fear. Um, definitely how long am I going to have to try and do this? Um, is this going to be permanent? How on earth could it be permanent? (laughs) Um, but really I was just, you know, it's kind of like that, that last house on the block feeling of if I can't find something, you know, there's nothing else for me. (laughs) Like if there's any chance that something could help me have a better life, I'm in you know
0: and you go to this meeting and you hear people say things that you've thought before you hear them talk about the way they felt the way that they drank and you're mind blown yes because you didn't think that there was anybody else like you exactly that you were so different and i felt the same way my parents were great parents they did everything that they could but they absolutely did not understand the disease of alcoholism mm-hmm. had no concept of it right. still they still don't mm-hmm. really i mean they they've learned more about it now as a part of my recovery but they really didn't have that concept so i didn't I, that that i didn't fit in in that way at home um i came from uh you know my mom dying when i was 11 and so and i never fit in at school and I never fit in anywhere. and I walk into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And unlike, um, unlike you, you you got this great gift to be able to identify right away, which has happened to me subsequently but didn't right away and i started comparing Mm. instead of identifying right i'm better than you i'm different (laughs) than you i'm not as good as you right and so i started going through that comparison mode of uh this is why i'm not like you all Mm. right i mean i think it's great by the way that you all have this (laughs) meeting or whatever you do right this this little cult situation i think that's great in fact i think it's adorable It's really not for me because I'm. Let, let's be honest, I'm pretty smart, and I don't need this little support group that y'all have. <laughs> um, so I, I I took a longer road than you did uh, in that, but when we got to our our surrender point. That's when we start identifying. Mm -hmm. That's when we start looking to reach out to people. That's when we start feeling like, and you'd said it, hope. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: There might be hope. There's people that have felt like me, that drank like me, that did what I did, and they recovered. Hmm. (laughs) And they're willing to share how they did it. Yes. And so... What did they tell you to do?
1: Uh, I can't even tell you how many times at that first meeting I heard, (laughs) keep coming back. But saved my life. You know, nine years later, I've never not gone back. You know, like.
0: That's a pretty simple (laughs) deal. You go to a meeting, you start identifying and a bunch of people say, hey, keep coming back. Yeah. All right, I right.
1: think <laughs> Yeah, you want sure. me here okay. All I got right. nothing else to do. Yeah. I'll come.
0: I'll keep coming back. <laughs> Done. Yes. Did, did did you get a sponsor right away? How did that work? A sponsor is obviously strongly recommended in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step programs that are out there. Did you get a sponsor right away?
1: Um well, the first, so at my first A&E meeting This wonderful guy, huge, kind of scary looking guy, came up to me. And (laughs) at first, I was terrified. And then I realized that he was about to hug me. And he's like, Welcome to the club, sister. And he handed me this book. And he's like, This one's yours to keep. And it was, you know, one of those big blue books. And he's like, My wife's number is written inside. And she sponsors people. Give her a call. (laughs) And I was so weirded out by how nice this person was being and how he was just giving me things having just met me.
0: He must have a hidden agenda. Must have. Clearly.
1: <laughs> he, but he didn't to this day. I still see him and he still talks to me about remember when you came in here. Um, but I didn't, I didn't actually end up calling his wife. Um, that was too out of my comfort zone too soon.
0: <laughs> Historically... I'm not very good at reaching out, especially right out of treatment, to call a stranger mm-hmm. and ask for help. That's hard to do. Yes. I don't even like asking people I know for help. And so uh, you had some early trepidation in terms of being able to ask for help.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was it was definitely offered. Um, at one point, um, I actually had gotten sober with a best friend of mine. Didn't end up sticking around, but at the time, her both her mother and stepdad were in the program, active members in the program. Um, so I did call her mother, my sponsor, for a little while and talked to her, kind of in person whenever I was over there with my friend, and considered that some sort of sponsorship. Um, but it wasn't until a few years actually into not having picked up a drink, not having picked up drug, going to these. AA meetings on a regular basis and still not feeling quite like I got what other people were getting hey
0: you were sober for three years and you didn't have a sponsor right and you weren't feeling good I thought you were supposed to feel amazing in recovery I thought (laughs) Jamie I thought when you got sober. Everything was uh, puppy tails, unicorns, and rainbows. Right. You're telling me that that it can it cannot be that way, and that potentially we might have to do something to you know get this sort of serenity that we see in the program.
1: Yes, there is work to be done.
0: Whoa, that's a four letter word. <laughs> That is a four-letter word, and I'm not sure that's allowed on the podcast. I'm just not uh, sure.
1: yeah, I know. I was waiting for something magical to happen, and I was wondering why it wasn't happening to me. Um, and kind of increasingly over time, I became more restless, irritable, discontent. You know, we up, get that way. <laughs> yeah, up up through all the night, um, thinking myself to death. I couldn't believe oh, how much that's I could awful. think. <laughs> oh,
0: Jamie, that is so awful. I hate that. I know what you're talking about, by the way, in terms of just oh, the mind and the gears over and over and over and over, and literally, you get to the point where you want to remove your brain. Yes. And throw it in the garbage. Yeah. Or hit the eject button and use, right? (laughs) Exactly. get to that point where I can't deal with this anymore.
1: No, yeah. You you know, you take away the drugs and alcohol, and you're still left with the same person. You know, I was still left with Jamie. And it turns out taking away the drugs and alcohol didn't change me that much. You know, I I thankfully didn't go the places I used to go and now went to places where... People who had a little uh, more of an idea of what life was about were at. And, you know, I didn't as much, like, lie, cheat, and steal. You know, I was doing my best (laughs) to be a good person without drugs and alcohol. And it just wasn't instinctually there. And over time, it got miserable and more miserable. And I was like, all these other people showing up where I show up. Are happy and like getting jobs and and doing fun things. And here I am miserable to the point where I want to start drinking again. Knowing how terrible that is too.
0: Right. Because we know what that's like. Mm -hmm. And that's pure hell. But we can get to a point even in sobriety you're saying. That that becomes a viable option again. Because the current reality is so bad. Yep. What did you do?
1: Well I have three years sober I had the option to drink um, potentially do something else to harm myself and you know what other whatever way whether it's blotting out until you know drugs and alcohol kill me or I kill me like, It got to the point where um, not existing was, you know, just as easy as an option as drinking. Or I could actually try and find one of these things called a sponsor. And maybe work some of these steps these people talked about. And try doing stuff for other people instead of thinking about myself all the time. And those didn't sound like too hard of things. Very scary and uncomfortable um but that was the option I went with was asking again for help um because you know I couldn't I couldn't do anything more than what I had to work with and that was when I asked uh this girl I met at my first meeting actually I would stuck around at the same home group for that long I knew the same people, and I was like, you know, that first meeting, she really made an impact on me. I'm gonna ask her, um, and we worked a little bit through the steps together. Um, we got to that step four they talk about that that inventory the searching, stuff. And yeah, fearless
0: <laughs> moral inventory. Which when I first read that. I, I thought I'd rather chew on thumbtacks while scratching my forehead with a cheese grater than do that.
1: Yep. <laughs> yeah, that that boogeyman step. Um, And we got about there, and that's when I decided I didn't like the sponsor anymore. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you want me to do what? Yeah, this isn't working out.
1: Yep. And I I actually did. I said that <laughs> to her and she's like, Well, do you want me to find you somebody else then? I was like, Oh. So there's <laughs> so either way I have to find somebody and she's like, Yeah. I was like, Okay, fine who? She's like, You're gonna ask my sponsor And I was like, Oh, okay. Well I kinda like the sound of that because you're doing well and she, you know, helped you, so maybe that's gonna work out for me. And that is the woman who's been my sponsor since. So I've been working with her for f- almost six years now. Five or six years. Um, again, kind of got to that inventory stuff again with this new sponsor. And I was like, uh... I'm so we gonna- get to step
0: one. We admit we're powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. You got there right away. Yep. Uh, a very wise person once told me if you if you surrender that you do that step before you walk into a meeting of alcoholics anonymous not everybody does but a lot of people i did before i even walked in i had surrendered i was Mm -hmm. done i gave up here's my white flag i cannot do this and whatever i was doing before isn't working at all Mm -hmm. i would call that the definition of unmanageable yes right and then we come to a That a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. So we are willing to entertain the thought that I can't do this. Maybe there's a power greater than ourselves that can, that can. Mm-hmm. Step three, we turned our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Mm-hmm. Now, that's I was told by my sponsor I don't know about your sponsor, but if we're having trouble with a certain step as I was working through the steps, then I need to go back to the the, the previous step Yeah. because I clearly didn't do that one good enough. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> the whole idea is that you're ready to do the next step after you complete the... the so, uh, yes. uh, you know, uh, doing a good step three
1: mm-hmm.
0: prepares us to take this searching step in fearless moral inventory. And this is where kind of you were stuck. And a lot of people get stuck there. Yes. And a lot of people end up, unfortunately, going back out. Yes. Because they can't get around that searching in fearless moral inventory because of fear, because of a whole, primarily fear, I think. Right. And was it that way for you? Was it fear?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> we're talking about sharing who I am out loud even on paper uh, that's a terrifying thought because that means I have to look at it right? and you know, potentially do something with it
0: we have to get ourselves down on paper and we have to take a clear look at exactly who we are I didn't like who I was mm-hmm. I didn't want to even it, I didn't want to look at it I didn't like who I was You want me to go and put this all down on paper? (laughs) And then I see step five there. It's not like you're hiding it. (laughs) Right. I know what comes next. (laughs) Right. So um, uh, that's a scary proposition. But for you... What did it take to get yourself to... It sounds like pain was a pretty powerful motivator at, at just to get started on the steps. <laughs> Absolutely, And pain motivates me and it motivates a lot of people uh, in recovery, mostly for me because I care a whole lot about how I feel. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really care about how Charlie feels like a lot. Yes. I always have. And so when I'm not feeling good or I'm feeling a lot of discomfort or pain... Mm. I need to stop feeling it. Yes. Otherwise, bad things are going to happen. I will eventually choose to medicate it Mm -hmm. if I can't deal with it in a healthy way. Might not be today, might not be tomorrow, but there will be a point where I can't deal with it anymore and I choose to medicate it.
1: Absolutely.
0: So pain motivated you to start on the steps. Did pain then motivate you again to go to four and then five?
1: Yes. Um, I don't remember... At least for my, my first experience with doing um, one of these outside of you know writing a little list in treatment, um, I don't remember a specific experience that caused that initial pain to, to go through with this inventory process. Um, but I do remember it got to the point where my sponsor said, "I'm sick of waiting for you. Here's a woman's number that listens to steps. <laughs> Call her when you're done. And, you know, something in that kind of motivated me in the sense of, okay, maybe I'll just dump all this on a stranger and run away. (laughs) And that actually was what got me to do my 1st fourth four-step and fifth-step. And, you know, I did write down thoroughly as much as I could and met up with this stranger woman I've never met um, and sat down and did this fifth step and we, we took about eight hours to do it, you know, very thorough. Um, and it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. You know, I still to this day talk to this woman. She was not the stranger that I left with my garbage and ran, you know, she was another woman who had gone through this process and had been through things that I've been through that helped me. Understand what that meant for me and what it looked like going forward for me, um, and that was the day I surrendered to the the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and not just um, this idea of being sober and this idea of going where other sober people go. You know, it's when I fully trusted in this work that these other people were telling me to do for so long.
0: And that's the distinction, really, between the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the 12 steps, and the fellowship mm-hmm. of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the meetings. Mm-hmm. And the fellowship is amazing. Yes. And I've met people in the rooms that I have a relationship today that I wouldn't trade for the world. Right, And when I get to go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I get to be with my people, mm-hmm. <laughs> the people that understand me, the people that understand how I think, feel, and operate, mm-hmm. and then can tell me how they successfully or not so successfully navigate life using or not using the tools yes. that we learn in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I can, I learned so much from those people, but. It's not enough. Mm-hmm. It's not enough. It wasn't enough for me. Um, because the last, uh, you know, I was sober for a year in my early, in, in my late teens. And it was just wall steps, right? You know, right. I mean, I I waxed poetically about steps, and, you know, uh, but I never actually worked <laughs> any of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, uh, boy, did I like to hear myself talk and I still kind of do let's be honest why I have a podcast yeah <laughs> however working the steps changed me it, working the steps brought a level of humility. it allowed me to start to have a relationship with a, the God of my understanding and God started doing for me slowly what alcohol did for me. Mm-hmm. but in a much more meaningful way yes. because I didn't have to say, I I don't have to sacrifice anything. I don't have to give up anything to get that feeling of strength. I don't get it all the time. Right. There's moments, but I will tell you what I never ever thought it was possible. You talk about that, that crazy racing thoughts that just drive us to the gates of insanity. I never thought I'd escape that. Right. And I never thought I would escape the obsession to want to escape me. Never.
1: Yeah. I
0: always thought that would be with me. Mm-hmm. Always. And by the grace of God, <laughs> somehow that's been removed, Jamie. I, I can't even explain it because I didn't intentionally do it. Right. It's not like I got the obsession removal tool right <laughs> and took it out. i didn't do that right like yeah. i didn't go in uh, to the doctor and say i need to get my obsession removed. please <laughs> it's really starting to cramp the style right. <laughs> right what i did was what people told me to do and i just did it to the best of my ability mm-hmm. and i worked those steps to the best of my given ability
1: yes
0: and then i don't know when it happened i can't tell you that but it happened, mm-hmm. and I just like one day I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> oh my god, I don't yeah. obsess over it anymore, and that was such a powerful moment for for me, where I felt like I could, I can do this, I can live like this, this this is gonna be okay. Did you get a feeling like that at some point through the process of the steps where it's like, yeah. This is gonna be okay.
1: I did. Um, it was actually 2012. There's quite a bit of backstory with this this little story. Um, I'll just kind of sum it up uh, along the lines of of the tendencies tendencies we share as alcoholics or addicts. Um, we speak a lot on selfishness and um, there was almost that obsession aspect of, um, trying to fill that hole of selfishness as I did with alcohol or drugs. Um, and I just had, you know, these desires to, like I said earlier, be loved and to love. And of course, (laughs) <laughs> young sober girl. there's dating experiences.
0: Sure, absolutely.
1: And I had this dating experience that turned out oh so terribly wrong. Um, you know, I'd gone against people's um, advice and uh, dated a fellow that wasn't known well for being a good role model in any sense. Um he was not. A good person,
0: he wasn't working a good program.
1: Oh, no, no, he was not working a good program. Um, but there was something you know, beyond lust and beyond um, uh, infatuation, it was more about trying to get what I wanted, sure. Um, and you know, it backfired on me, and in, in such a a terrible way in the sense that I ended up um, sleeping with this person and we ended up getting pregnant um, and you know long story short um, I had a miscarriage and this person decided to tell everybody that I was lying about being pregnant um, and that I made all this stuff up to make people feel bad for me Um, and he's you know called me ugly names and this person was just terrible to me and you know at this point I kind of cut off most of my other resources um, in the sense of I had stopped calling my sponsor and stopped talking to my close friends Mm -hmm. and kind of just focused on this this new obsession of trying to get satisfaction from another person and you know it it backfired so bad and I was left in such a place of despair and, and hopelessness in the sense of how, when not drinking and using drugs, have I gotten to myself into such a terrible situation? And, um, speed it up a bit. This was kind of a reoccurrence just for the next two years. I just kept getting myself into these terrible relationships with people or these terrible experiences, you know, stealing money, and stealing uh, jewelry from my parents and getting caught you know thieving five years sober four years sober and just having these terrible feelings about it um and uh long story short i actually ended up trying to make an amends to that that first boyfriend i was speaking on and somehow In my twisted little mind, having made this amends to this person now meant that maybe we could try to work things out together, Mm -hmm. you know, because he had just gotten sober again and was attending these meetings again, working a program again. And I was like, maybe this is going to work out for us this time, which in reality is like, maybe I'm going to get what I want this time, (laughs) Um, which is how I ran for a long time. And, of course, full of consequences doing that. Um, But 2012, I uh, found out he was using again and lying to me, and so I broke up with him. Um, And then a week later, I found out I was pregnant again. And I can't even tell you these feelings of, you know, not only once before have I gotten to this point where this huge thing is happening to me. You know, this huge responsibility um but now a second time and that I continue to make these decisions based on self that keep bringing me these terrible consequences and um I ended up having another miscarriage. Um and you know this you know my first one was at 19, second one 21 and Um, I can't you know it's it's a terrible thing that women have sadly have to go through it's not uncommon that women go through a situation like that Um, but a terribly sad thing and something that uh, I didn't know how to deal with and that second one is really you know when I started feeling once again that despair that hopelessness this I still can't do this on my own. I can't, I still can't make life work the way I want it to. Um, and <clears throat> it was uh, coincidentally like the same weekend as Gopher State weekend. Um, and this woman spoke at Gopher State as one of the main speakers. And she talked about having the same experience that I had just gone through. And she talked about um, the third step. And she talked about how after this experience that just broke her heart. And tossed her through a loophole like, you know, she was sober too when this this miscarriage of hers happened and she's full of despair, full of what do I do? How do I get through this? And she was like, I got on my knees and I said the third step prayer as honestly, thoroughly and sincerely as I could and my life changed and I went home and I did that that night and um, you know, that was in two thousand and twelve and I can say since then I've like been rocketed into this fourth dimension they talk about. Rocketed into um consistently striving to work through these program this program, to work on myself as an individual and to um not expect the best life be given to me, but to work for it. And um You know, just a week after doing this, you know, I was speaking at all these (laughs) treatment centers. I had literally 13 sponsees. It was like God threw all of this stuff onto my plate so I could get through this as a we instead of me trying to get through this on my own. Um, And I can honestly say since then there hasn't been a moment where I've gone gotten to that point where pain was my motivator again you know I don't have to wait for consequences to kick me in the rear to do the things that I know are going to do good things for me you know and you know since then I've been continuously sponsoring women like um, my god works in a delightful way for me in the sense of anytime I start thinking about myself too much, he gives me an opportunity to help somebody else. <laughs> yeah. I can <laughs> and, relate. You know, even during this podcast, I've had three missed calls from sponsors because God forbid I talk about myself for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, gosh, yeah, I just have a beautiful program since then. Um, and wonderful people that help me continue to work it
0: you had a second surrender yes and that's what step three felt like for me Mm -hmm. was a second surrender so i surrendered at that first point and then i step three was a second surrender and i felt very much the same way that i had been propelled into this new dimension of life where i now had a new very simple but new design for living yes and i wanted it Mm -hmm. and i just kept doing it and i just kept trying to be of maximum service to the to to the god of my understanding which is pretty dang limited at the time Mm -hmm. and it's still not super complex let's uh, and and i don't want it that way right but i know his will for me is to be of maximum service to him into the people around me, and if I do that, then I know the rest of it takes care of itself, and I'm gonna be all right. I still think about me a lot, so I think about it like I am a horrendously selfish person, and I never thought I was. Mm-hmm. By the way, I never <laughs> thought I was selfish or self-centered. Yeah, uh, but horrendously selfish and self-centered. All I cared about was me and how I felt and how you made me feel or how you could possibly make me feel. Right. If I can manipulate you. So now we're in this next dimension of life where we're able to start realizing some of those promises. And it sounds like you were able to start realizing some of those promises. I think your recovery story It's beautiful, it's amazing, it's inspirational. There's not enough of this amazing recovery story out there. You got sober at a young age, went through a lot in your sobriety, and you were able to get to a place of uh, recovery um, on your journey. and we all recover in different ways you know and the mm-hmm. promises say sometimes quickly sometimes, sometimes slowly <laughs> you know and it took me a long time to surrender and then things happened pretty quickly for me after that yep and for you,
1: surrender you surrendered quickly. pretty
0: darn quickly but it took you a while for the other stuff to kind of fall yep. into place which I think that story needs to be out there. Like we don't all recover the same way no. or at the same speed. Mm-hmm. You know, it happens to us in different ways. But if we keep coming back and we can put our head down sober, we have a chance to get these gifts. We have to work the program. We have to do the work. I had to do the work. You had to do the work, right? Yes. Uh, there's that, No matter how hard we try, there is no way around that. No. It just ain't, <laughs> right? Gotta do the work. And then the promises come sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize.
1: If we work for them.
0: God bless you, Jamie. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: All right. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out, where we share stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's Wayoutcast all one word, .com. Or drop your host a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. And there you can also find links to previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podcast Garden. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, contact me at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety day will.